Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I am so excited to talk to this incredible panel for our 100th episode. Returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way. She also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Welcome back, Lene. What a week. (laughs) It sure is. Also, Simon Rosenberg. Simon is the founder of New Democratic Network. He's a veteran of two presidential campaigns, including the 1992 Clinton campaign, and a former advisor to the DCCC during the 2018 election cycle, and Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Simon, it's great to have you on again. Welcome back. Great to be here. And congratulations on the 100th episode. Thank you so much. And returning to the roundup is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Susan, it's great to see you this morning. It's wonderful to join this great panel on your 100th anniversary. That's so exciting. <laughs> we are going to have some fun. <laughs> Thank you. On this week's roundup, We'll talk about the report that our friends at Third Way put out about the plot to steal the presidency and what we can do and what Congress cannot do to protect democracy. The news that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is preparing to retire. Newt Gingrich is pushed to have the January 6th committee jailed if Republicans take back Congress. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we're going to talk about the options Biden is weighing to respond if Russia invades Ukraine and what that can mean for our domestic politics. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. And before we dig in, as we've just noted, I want to thank all of our listeners who've been on this journey with us for the last 100 episodes of Politicology over the last year. Whether you've been with us for nearly 200 episodes when we started back at the Lincoln Project or you're tuning in for the very first time, we are extremely thankful that you're with us in this fight and we'd never be able to make the show or have these conversations without your support. So from the bottom of my heart to you, thank you. Let's get started. On Wednesday, Axios reported that Third Way, the center-left think tank where Linnae works, is urging Democrats to approach their response to the attack at the Capitol with the size, scope, and seriousness of a presidential campaign. Third Way co-founder Matt Bennett called this a Paul Revere moment and called for Democrats to run two parallel presidential campaigns, one to win the election and one to prevent its theft. Linnae, I want to turn this over to you, actually, to walk us through the backstory of how and why the team at Third Way put this together, and then lay out the broad points of the presentation, both how you all identified the points of the plot and then what Democrats can do to stop it. And I should just say, to begin with, I was thrilled to see this when you sent it to me yesterday, because this is exactly the alarm that we have been sounding on this podcast for months and months and months for Democrats to pay attention and and focus the energy and attention where the threat actually is pointed. And so, you know, thank you to you and your organization for for putting this together. So why don't you walk our listeners through it? 
Well, yes, I knew that you would be the number one audience for this, Ron, when we were putting it together. And I think uh, you actually had seen previous versions of memos that went into the research that went into this um, as as we've been developing it. But, you know, um, Matt has been working with a lot of the um, former Republicans that are never Trumpers and are now trying to save democracy um, throughout the Trump administration. And um, and through that work, he um, he has been, you know, his own alarm has been raised. <laughs> and this is what keeps him up at night. The idea that um, not just um, the vote will be suppressed and then we'll lose the election, but that Republicans are actually intentionally setting up um, the substance they need in order to just steal it. And um, and so he decided, and, and after talking to a lot of democracy experts, um, that we really needed to step in and sound the alarm because, you know, the never Trumpers have been there for a long time, have been saying this is a problem. And then the, the far left also, um, you know, often calls attention to um, this as, as a problem. But it doesn't seem that the establishment of the Democratic Party in D.C. is really focused on it. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Um, I support the Freedom to Vote Act, but it would not address any of these issues. So even when we're talking about um, voting uh, and voting rights, um, what the solutions that we're putting on the table are not either to scale or um, the scope of what the Republicans are really attacking us with at this point. And so um, we put this together to try to just, you know, really raise the alarm with um, Democratic leadership, with campaign folks, with the White House, and say, you have to take this seriously. Because what we found is, you know, obviously the other side is taking it seriously. they have 163 uh, statewide offices where big liars are running to replace people who actually believe in democracy. Steve Bannon has been trying to get people to go sign up as poll workers. Um, ProPublica looked, and in battleground counties, nearly 9,000 new poll workers have signed up to uh, try to actually count the votes, and um, and they don't believe in democracy. So these are huge problems, um, and it's it's well beyond vote suppression. So uh, we kind of walk through in the deck. Yes, there's suppressing the vote, but then there's installing big lie vote counters. Those uh, statewide officials and others who um, really you know are are responsible for um, actually certifying the elections were threatened. We're seeing threatening of election officials. Um, One in three poll workers say that they fear for their lives. Um, We're seeing uh, legislatures take over control and say, well, maybe we're not even going to do what the voters say. We'll just decide who our electors are um, and putting in place rules to be able to do that. And then obviously we're seeing folks um, who want to sabotage the Electoral College. And so when we look at all of those things put together, that's basically five ways that the Republican Party wants to steal the election. And we're really only focused on one of them. We need to be focused on all five of them. And as you said, run a campaign that is going to win in 2024, but also a parallel campaign that gets just as much focus to make sure that when we win, those votes are actually counted and the nominee, the candidate is actually certified. So Simon, Democrats are also looking at a midterm election that will likely have them lose control of Congress, if we're honest. And I wonder if you're thinking about where to focus money and resources 
how would you be weighing these federal elections and the state elections? And and by the way, I should say, Susan, Simon, if you have questions for Linnea about this report, by all means, feel free. Yeah, listen, I think that I'm I'm actually on the very optimistic end of looking ahead to the elections this year. And I think um, in part because I think the radicalization of the Republican Party is going to keep the election close. I think it's going to make the Republicans at a federal level have a low ceiling. It doesn't mean that we win, but it's going to keep things competitive. The country voted against MAGA in both 2018 and 2020. The Republicans have doubled down on MAGA. I think for a lot of swing suburban voters that came our way in the last two elections, this is just they're just not presenting to voters something that's appealing to them. And so it means that I think we're going to stay in the game. And, and I think in terms of what we need to do now, and I agree with everything that Lene just said, is that I think there are three ways that we have to um, win the election this year. And it's, it's first, we have to defeat COVID. Second is we have to secure the recovery and make sure the economy is going strong. And third is we have to defend our democracy. And I do think that what's happening in Ukraine right now is going to give Joe Biden a different way to frame and get into the stuff that Lene is talking about. I think that part of the struggle that Democrats have had is how to talk about this in plain English. It doesn't make us sound like crazy partisans, right? Or wild-eyed, you know, people, what do you mean the election is going to be taken, right? I do think that this frame of defending our democracy is something that Joe Biden can create a through line between what he's doing with NATO and Europe down to what we have to do here at home. And it creates a much more powerful frame for us to get into the stuff that Lene is talking about. And so I think if we base, if we go to the American people in the State of the Union and say, we're going to do three things this year, right? We're going to defeat COVID, secure the recovery, you know, grow the economy and defend our democracy. That frame, I think, is a powerful one we can take to the to the American people, because there is no question that we're going to have to make the radicalization, the extremism of the Republican Party central to our narrative, uh, because it's getting far worse. It's not getting better. It's metastasized after Trump. And I think we haven't really, as a party, I agree with Linnea's point, we haven't taken responsibility for this, and we need to. Uh, it's It's our obligation, I think, to the American people to be honest with them about the threats to their country abroad and at home. And we've got to, we've got to, I think, show more courage here. And I appreciate the work that Third Way has done here. Totally agree. And I'm glad you brought up Ukraine uh, because we're going to talk about that in our plus segment. We spent some considerable time with foreign policy experts, national security experts about the dynamics uh, and what's going on over there. But I, but I actually want to spend some time with the three of you talking about the domestic political implications of a potential war on the border of Ukraine with Russia. And that's a completely different conversation. So good preview. Susan. We've talked a lot before about how Democrats have prioritized federal races, as opposed to state and local infrastructure building. If Democrats decide to put a greater emphasis on statewide and legislature uh, elections, how will they need to message that to their donors? Um, great question. Um, I think at this point, the things that like Lene just uh, cited all happen at state and local level. So if you're talking about stealing our democracy or keeping the integrity of our system, you can you can bring it down to those levels of government. But there's a few things that I think are important when it comes to messaging. Talking about protecting our democracy or stealing you know, our elections, those are things that are really important intellectually. And this presentation from Third Way is very important to the, the people who are the influ key influencers in Washington. But I kept thinking, like, why not People think elections work. First of all, we talk about them all the time. And we don't talk about a lot of very, you know, elections that were stolen. Maybe people say they want to steal or they don't 
you know, they contest them, but we had, we've had races since 2020 and they seem to work. So I think things like poll workers, when we're talking about the poll workers that Bannon is signing up and others, I don't think we should talk about them as just like the Republicans are putting in their poll workers. They're putting in disruptors. That's what they are. Those poll workers are the same people who would show up on, you know, showed up on January 6th. Those are the disruptors. Those are the people. And we know that they want to disrupt because they have. When you talk about putting together a slate of electors to send in on, you know, to the federal government, which is actually what's supposed to happen. The, the elections get certified for the president and you send those in. There were four states that fraudulent s- slates were sent in and now we're being looked at through the DOJ. So we know we have to show like these hard, concrete things that people do. And that there's proof that it's not just, oh, they're stealing our democracy. These are tangible things that they have done and facing legal challenges. The last thing, and I know this is going to be very hard for my my friends on the Democratic uh, side of the aisle to agree with, is sometimes there are good Republicans. (laughs) And if you're looking at who can win in a state like Georgia, the chances are the best per- the best person who could win, it's kind of like what Buckley used to say, I'm for the most conservative candidate that can win, is Brad Raffensperger. And so he's he is facing a really hard primary challenge. And frankly, he said some things that I find abhorrent in the way he's defending the, the state legislative voting laws that, that were just put in effect in Georgia. But he has shown that at least he has the integrity to count the votes straight and doesn't go out and find 11,780 or whatever the number was that Donald Trump asked him to do. So we even have him on tape. So I think we really need to, to, to bring these things down to a place where people are more receptive to the concept of we need tighter controls because they are being chipped away at and what that actually means and, 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 and doing those education campaigns. But the way it comes out of Washington, it just turns people away. They don't, they think it's too much. And then you add on COVID and I couldn't agree with Simon. Yeah. We've got to come out of COVID and then we've got to come out of the recovery. But those are the things that people are really focused on. And just one other thing to Simon's point, I do agree with him that this is going to be a lot closer for Democrats than, uh, history has shown. It would be as far as fighting the opposite party, because there are a ton of candidates who are fighting at Republican primaries who will win, who are the baddiest, Trumpiest, nuttiest wackadoos in the Republican Party. And you can't put up that kind of person in a swing district and think you're going to win, no matter how badly the Democrat message is at the time. So I do think it's definitely going to be closer. And People should be actually somewhat, I don't want to say thankful, but, um, or grateful, but recognize the influence that Donald Trump is having. And that's not such a bad thing. Uh, I, well, okay. <laughs> I, I can't agree with that in any possible way. No, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I, I agree, not thankful, but at least recognize that this, this effect, him getting so involved in some of these primaries yeah. are, are he, as a result are putting up 
very bad candidate. Yes. Okay. Which is I, a very good thing. Yes. I just want to say one thing, which is like, y- you are right. I, I agree with you on the, on the, uh, you know, the swing districts, right? The implications, but, but the reality is swing districts are going the way of, you know, they're on the endangered species list. They continue to evaporate swing districts. So sorry. Um, well, swing dis- states as well, by the way. Okay. Yes, fine. But I true, just want to—I want to put an exclamation point on one thing that Susan said, though. I love the idea of talking about it as disruptors, because you know, demo- democracy is such an abstract thing. And I just saw a poll where um, you know different um, values were tested. How important is this to you in your life? And democracy was one of the bottom <laughs> compared to lots of other things for the American people because it doesn't resonate in the same way. It doesn't really touch their lives. I mean, it does, but they don't recognize it that way. When you talk about democracy, which is, you know, just kind of a, um, a faraway concept, but I love the disruptors piece because what I've seen in, in particular, you know, in the research over the last year with how people have reacted to January 6th, people don't want chaos. That's what they're trying to avoid is chaos. And that's why Republicans are trying to pin chaos on Democrats. They're saying chaos at the border, chaos with policing reform. Now we can't have law enforcement, you know, uh, attack crime in our communities. Um, They're trying to pin that label on the Democratic Party. And we absolutely have to turn it around and make the um, anti-democracy folks the chaos party. And, uh, And then, yes, absolutely embrace the Republicans who are willing to count the votes because there are some. And just so you know, I mean, I think it would be a great ad if the Democrats would say, these are the people and use images of January 6th that are currently being recruited to be your poll watchers. Yeah, I mean, Simon, this goes to your point about showing them to be the radicals that they are. The radicalization of the Republican Party is on full display for any Democratic ad maker who wants to turn it into something, you know, powerful. Yeah, and I think structurally, right, I think if, if Joe Biden uh, can, over the next six months, you know, by July 4th, make it clear that we've come through this uh, COVID, this incredible challenge of COVID, that the economy is still strong, I think it's going to be up to each individual candidate uh, in their states or their districts to explain how their candidate is radical, extreme, unfit, right? Whatever the words we're going to use, because it will, it will be very particular to, the, to a state or district based, and it could be something that's obscure. It could be a vote that they took on something that's very important locally uh, that isn't a national issue. And that's where I think Terry McAuliffe went wrong. I mean, what Terry McAuliffe did was just yell, <laughs> Trump, 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 right? And, and, that, and that didn't work, right? Because and what he needed to do is to explain how this guy, his opponent, was extreme and radical, and that, and it's not just good enough to yell Trump. So I do think there's a path forward for us. I don't, and and I will tell you, for having done this for 30 years, I don't think the things we have to do are that hard, right? Like I, I don't, I don't think indicting the Republicans as extremists is that hard. I don't think getting credit for a, an economy that was growing at almost six percent GDP growth over the last year is that hard. I don't think ending, you know, getting through the other side of COVID and getting credit for it, I think we're sort of headed there, right? So I think the likely scenario for this election is this is going to be a very competitive election. And Democrats have to start become, we got to get out of the darkness that we're in right now as a family and recognize that we've done a really good job our first year. This is one of the strongest economies in the last you know, in 40 years, right? Uh, a lot of things are going right. And all we have to do as the incumbent party is to make it clear 
that things are better. And we can do that because things are actually better. So I think that in terms of like what we have to do, we may not be able to pass a voting rights bill. We may not be able to do a BBB, but there's a lot of things we can do. And that's what we've got to focus on now. Yeah. And I think that goes to a point Ron and I were talking about earlier this week is playing small ball, getting mm-hmm. the wins, like get some wins under that. There's nothing wrong with that. I used the comparison to my golf swing. I was great off the tee many years ago. I could go like 180, 200, <laughs> but I couldn't tell you which direction it was going to go. <laughs> Whereas I would play off the, I would play these other older women and they'd be a hundred yards off the tee, but they just go boop mm-hmm. one after the other. And they were on the green in three or four and chip, you know, chipping or putting for, for a par or, or some, you know, a great shot. So I think that's so key. What Simon's saying is that, you know, you take what Lene is doing at a hundred thousand feet and the, and the right ideas that need to be coming out of Washington and then bring it to the ground. Like Simon is, I mean, is, is essential because I think that there's Republicans out there that voted for Joe Biden that will vote for Democrats again if it shows that chaos is not ensuing our nation and our leadership right now, meaning that Democrats are being responsible, things are normal. I know we're getting into the Ukraine later, but Simon brought up a really good point. This shows what good leadership is, knowing who our allies are, working with them. It's also one of the few things that are bipartisan right now. So there, there is, I, I always think there's hope, but, um, I, I think it's just got to be drilled down to those local races. Totally agree. Okay. I would love to spend a lot more time on this particular topic, but um, uh, we got to move on. Lene, I, maybe maybe you and I can come back and, and do something and dive into this a little bit deeper. Maybe Matt Bennett wants to join us. I'd love to walk through it in a little more detail with you, especially operationally, how you want to get Democrats to do things yeah. on the ground, right? What, what does this look like in practice? And then also what can people mm-hmm. do? Um, uh, and in the meantime, uh, politicology listeners, uh, we don't often give out homework on the podcast, but if you are so inclined and you've been listening to us for some period of time, we'll put a link to this presentation in the show notes. And I have to encourage you in the strongest possible term to go read it because it's easy to understand. Um, the third way folks did a marvelous job laying out in detail uh, the the nature of the threat and the scope and the scale and what is going to be required to 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 combat it. And so take a minute, go flip through the deck, and you will be smarter and more prepared for it. And we will return to this topic. And it will be harder to fall asleep tonight. <laughs> that is true, sadly. Maybe do it tomorrow. On Wednesday, Supreme Court and Biden administration officials said that U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring after serving on the court nearly three decades. Breyer is expected to announce his retirement on Thursday. The 83-year-old justice was nominated for the court by President Clinton and has been credited for attempting to build consensus for centrist decisions on the court. His retirement gives President Biden the first opportunity to name a new justice to the court. Replacing Breyer won't shift the 6-3 conservative makeup of the court, but it could prevent it from shifting further to the right if Republicans retake the Senate in November. Mitch McConnell has said that we might not confirm a Biden nominee in the final two years of Biden's term if Republicans control the Senate. During her Wednesday briefing, Jen Psaki said that they wouldn't comment on the retirement before Breyer's official announcement, but she did confirm that Biden's commitment to a campaign pledge to nominate a black woman to the court. So I do want to get into the politics of this and what a, what a fight is going to look like. But first, um, Lene, I have a I have a 
a burning question for you, given that you and I have spent some time talking about this. Back in September, uh, we discussed how insanely efficient the machine that is, you know, what Republicans have built for nominating and confirming judges to the federal bench, and that part of why Democrats have failed to build their own answer to that machinery is that they lack a key ingredient Republicans have, which is a shared, comprehensive judicial philosophy. Now, Biden has been prolifically nominating judges and tweeting uh, back in October, he said, in just nine months, we have nominated more black women to the federal circuit courts and more public defenders to the bench than any administration in all of American history, end quote. And the first thing I thought when I saw that tweet back then was, okay, but this signals to me as a voter, as a citizen, that gender and skin color are important vetting criteria but it doesn't tell me a lot about the experience, the qualifications, or the jurisprudence of the nominees. Uh, you know, for example, by contrast, a Republican president tweeting something like that would have bragged about nominating qualified conservative judges, right? Uh, since we know Biden is almost guaranteed to nominate a black woman, uh, as was his campaign promise, which would be a perspective the Supreme Court has never had, can you talk about this focus on representation that's almost standing in for a cohesive judicial philosophy. And when it comes to jurisprudence, what vetting actually looks like behind the scenes. And then we'll dig into the politics, but I, I, I have to hear your, your take on this. I know we talked about the fact that the only thing Biden said on the campaign trail about the Supreme Court was that he would nominate a black woman and that that just really, um, you know, puts a, a, a pin in the problem that we have on on the left in talking about judges. I think it's great that we should have a black woman on the Supreme Court. I, You know, I'm with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she said, um, you know, how many women are enough on the Supreme Court? And she said, how about nine? You know, like I'm, I'm there for it, but that's not the <laughs> right. only thing I'm there for. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is sitting on the court and she's not representing me. So I do think... Um, you know, we ha we have a problem in that we cannot articulate what we want our judges to be doing, how we want our judges to be ruling, um, what we think, um, what questions we think we should ask them other than um, outcomes questions, right? Are you going to uphold marriage equality? Are you going to uphold Roe? And of course, all anybody who Biden nominates would you know, be able to talk about those two outcomes, but it also, um, it's not enough. We need to articulate how are you go going to approach a case? And, um, and that's the place where I think we're, we're really behind Republicans and continue to be. And I'm, and I'm wondering how that's going to, you know, uh, play out in the confirmation hearing, Susan, ex exactly what Lene just, uh, set up. Yeah, I heard a very interesting piece of commentary recently, and I, I'm, I apologize for not being able to cite it, but it was describing the way Justice Breyer looked at his role as a Supreme Court justice, which was to bring the Constitution forward into current day, to look at things not just as a strict interpretation of the way it was written over 200 years ago, but how it applies to us today. And I think that offers some kind of lens or guidance to what Democrats' philosophy really is about when it comes to Supreme Court justices. It, you know, we hear a lot like, oh, you want to get their lived experience and what they, you know, how they view things, but also the way they want to interpret the Constitution. Do we look at it through 2022 when we look at, for example, 
when they're looking at gun safety issues, the Supreme Court's going to rule if you can have a concealed, if you need to have a concealed permit to carry a gun in New York. Can you imagine if you don't? I mean, that to me is just is frightening. And that's a very modern day issue that has nothing to do, frankly, with the Second Amendment. This is a, you know, that's a public safety issue. And I know that's probably the wrong thing to go into as far as, you know, as picking an issue and you don't need to deal with a state like New York necessarily. But boy, like these confirmation hearings have to bring out what is the Democratic Party? Like, what do they think of our judicial system and our values as a country? And that's what they have to start, I think, threading through. And putting it into comparison, because I think a lot of people who are now happy not to see nine all white men on the on the Supreme Court will say, yeah, I need someone who's going to interpret the law the way it applies today and how it can affect me and and who who's current and understands technology and things like that. And that you just can't look at it through that old dated lens. So maybe what Breyer did as a justice can be a step forward for the next appointee and a messaging aspect for the Democrats. Simon, there was a lot of speculation that the Amy Coney Barrett nomination uh, could have galvanized Republican support in the 2020 election. And maybe it had some impact, uh, but obviously not enough to swing the presidential election toward Trump. Um, As we now enter the fraught territory of of Supreme Court nominations and and confirmation proceedings. How do you expect Democrats and how do you want Democrats to move forward? And what is, what is the smartest way for them to handle this? Yeah, I mean, I think the big reboot for Biden is going to come with the State of the Union in early March. And I think there has to be a very aggressive campaign led by the White House and, and the whole family from March through July 4th to create a new story and narrative that is not glass half empty, but glass half full and us feeling good about what we've done and that we've got more to do. Right. Right. I mean, right now we're living in a lot of on the things that haven't happened as opposed to the things that have. We've got to get beyond that. And Biden's got to create some kind of new structural framework for how he's going to talk about his presidency. And I think the State of the Union will be a good way to do that. My hope is that we use this nomination to continue to push us away from where we've been to a new place, uh, a better place to take to the electorate, um, you know, in the spring and summer. It's my view that if we don't turn this thing around, uh, we need to make the election competitive by July 4th. I mean, it's not good enough for Labor Day you know, things it's we've got sort of a, a brief period where we can fundamentally change the dynamics of the Ameri- of the election. And I think that this nomination coming in the period after the State of the Union will be a really critical part of it. Right. It's going to be a piece of a series of things that we do to reboot and reframe the Biden presidency. And, and I think it's going to be a powerful part of it. I assume he's going to appoint Katani Jack- Judge Jackson. I mean, it seems like that's the conventional wisdom. She's an unbelievably impressive person. And I think that we'll all be very proud to see her up there, uh, you know, being questioned by whomever in the Senate. And I think it will be a, a good moment for the country and for us. And, and I think we need those small wins, right? The 20 the yard shots and not the long ones, right, that Susan was talking about. And this will be one of them. And, and so I think it's going to be a powerful part of what we do in the coming year. Yeah, and just one thing in, in, in contrast to add to that is don't forget this, the um, 
Supreme Court will be coming down with a lot of really incredible rulings um, in June, late June. So, um, you know, whether it's basically getting rid of Roe v. Wade for practical purposes, that's going to be, you know, a watershed moment for this country and seeing a, a justice, you know, showing that the Supreme Court picks matter and whose president really matters is, I mean, I think that'll be a great contrast and a way to also play that up going forward, because I think Roe v. Wade is going to light the summer on fire because we have 12 states that are trigger states that are going to become all of a sudden places where you cannot get an abortion if you're a woman and under any circumstance practically. And I think there's going to be a lot of focus of that in the media. I hope that Simon and Susan are right, that um, this is going to be a good moment, that it's going to mobilize people. What I worry about is what we've seen in the past, which is that the right cares a heck of a lot more about judges than the left does. And, you know, I just think about the Kavanaugh hearings, which, um, you know, also lit everything on fire, lit me on fire. I felt like I was actually physically on fire (laughs) during those, those hearings. And the... And But what we saw come out of it was a boost in Republican turnout in those subsequent elections, not a boost in turnout on the left. And that is the boost that ended up um, getting senators like Heidi Heitkamp um, ousted from, from her seat in a state like North Dakota, where she was you know, very moderate and representative, but um, she was just overtaken by this um, this wave, red wave of people who care about the court. Um, and so I do worry that uh, although we say we care about it on the left, um, we don't usually follow that up with action and we need to this time. But, but there's one difference and that's with Republicans, we, they kept fighting and until they got what they wanted and they have what they want. They have six justices on the Supreme Court. So like they're they're not coming out like they're good. They're coming out for other things, but really not that anymore because they kind of have it. They're like, I got six. It's going to be a while. Like we're in pretty good shape. But what's different this time is for the first time that I can remember, and I'm not a historian, I'm not a legal scholar, but when have we had a right taken away from half the country by the U.S. Supreme Court, taken away. There's a big difference from voting a certain way to affirm or to kind of go along. It's another thing to vote to take away a right. And I'm not saying that all women are are pro-choice, but I think the fact that this court, and that's how the Democrats should really frame the issue to get people mobilized, is that Now they're trying to take control of your body away from you. They have effectively eliminated eliminated your choice over your body. And that's a powerful thing. Tell me when, I I can't think of another time where one of our most significant rights as individuals have been taken away. Lene, before we uh, move on, can you just briefly lay out how our listeners should expect the confirmation process to play out in the Senate, the timeline, just a high level, what we should expect to see? Yeah. So the White House um, hasn't officially said anything yet because Breyer hasn't officially resigned yet. So um, that actually, you know, may be happening very shortly, um, or it might actually happen between the time that we record this podcast and it and it airs. So, um, but uh, what we have heard is that um, Chuck Schumer in the Senate wants 
wants to um, move as quickly as Mitch, Mitch, Mitch McConnell did with Amy Coney Barrett, which was about five weeks. <laughs> now, the Senate is slow and old and uh, in, in lots of ways. And so it uh, that makes it pretty hard. Usually it takes, you know, multiple months, a month of vetting, a month of hearings, a month of, uh, you know, everybody um, going through the motions of um, all of the process that they need to do. But I expect that Biden will do the background check and vetting and announce a nominee within a month. We'll then have a very quick turnaround hearings. Um, Republicans can't stop uh, Democrats from confirming someone with a simple majority, but they can slow things down. There's rules. Um, and, you know, Democrats like to comply with the rules. So there's rules like you can hold over the nomination for a week. You can uh, ask questions on the record to take up more time. So they'll delay a little bit. But I would suspect that before before the end of the term, we're going to have um, the Supreme Court justice in place ready to step into Breyer's seat as soon as he actually is finished. Okay. And we should also be watching for any signals potentially from uh, Democratic senators like Manchin and Cinema because Democrats can't afford to lose any votes on this, right? That's right. And I think that's, you know, Simon mentioned a, a D.C. Circuit Court judge that is kind of the leading favorite right now. Um, it, she actually was confirmed with the votes of Manchin and Cinema, and also some uh, Republican votes. She got three Republican votes. Now, no Republican is going to vote for any Democratic nominee for the Supreme Court. So that's not happening. Wait, for the record, Lindsey Graham. I know. Lindsey Graham. I know. I have, because I always have to bring up his name. during. He, even crazy Lindsey Graham had a lucid moment and and supported that nomination. Wow. It's very confusing, but he won't this time, of course. Um, but I do think that that sets her up well to um, get Mansion and Cinema um, on board. Uh, the other two nominees that folks are talking about, this woman from the California Supreme Court um, and a woman who is currently sitting on the federal district court, the lowest level court, um, but is up for um, a promotion already. Um, it, they both are really, you know, kind of moderate center left people that I think Mansion and Cinema will also support. And, you know, I, I had seen a bunch of coverage this morning about uh, their record on judicial nominees, and both of them have been in lockstep with the White House on those nominees. And Manchin actually has a, um, a a real penchant for just deferring to the president in general, whether or not of his party, um, to confirm their nominees. So I don't suspect this is going to be a BBB type situation, but you never know. Okay, we have saved the craziest for last today. Last week, Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich wrote an op-ed titled, The Wolves Will Become Sheep. And then he spoke with Fox's Maria Bartiromo on Sunday. Here is what he had to say. You were at with an op-ed recently uh, titled, The Wolves Will Become Sheep. Walk us through that op-ed and what's taking place right now in Washington. Sure. Well, you have both with Attorney General Garland and with this uh, select committee on January 6th, people who've run amok. Uh, they are breaking the rules. They are going after people in a way which is reminiscent of the British uh, monarchy using uh, closed door systems that we outlawed deliberately because we'd seen it. We knew what it was like. Uh, and they're running over people's civil liberties. And what they need to understand is on January 4th next year, 
uh, you're going to have a Republican majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate. And all these people who've been so tough and so mean and so nasty are going to be delivered subpoenas for every document, every conversation, every tweet, every email, uh, because I think it's clear that this, these are people who are literally just running over the law, pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for no justification. And it's basically a lynch mob. And unfortunately, the attorney general of the United States has joined that lynch mob and is totally misusing the FBI. And I think when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down and the wolves are going to find out that they're now sheep. And they're the ones who are, in fact, going to, I think, face a real risk of jail uh, for the kind of laws they're breaking. Well, this is such great analysis. Thank you for including that little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> Sorry, that's funny. <laughs> this is such great analysis. <laughs> We got to leave it. In his op-ed, Gingrich invoked Joseph Stalin, the Castro brothers, and Hugo Chavez and compared them to the January 6th committee. He paints this committee as a vengeful attempt to attack and bankrupt people who worked for and supported Trump. He wrote that Kevin McCarthy should send a letter to the attorney general, U.S. attorneys, and the FBI warning that they will be forced to answer for their persecution of America uh, of Americans for their political views, and that McCarthy should send a letter to the select committee warning them that their work will be reviewed by a new select committee on con on congressional dishonesty and abuse of power. <laughs> Simon. <laughs> How, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, this is just, Newt's, first of all, Newt's right. They will do it. They will do it. Uh, and I, how could the prospect of a new McCarthy era dragging members of Congress trying to understand who orchestrated an attack on Congress before a committee hearing shape the midterms? I can't believe I'm asking that question out loud, but I am. I, I think, listen, it's an obvious sign of how scared they all are <clears throat> about how effective the January 6th commission has been. Um, you know, this is a bipartisan Commission. It has been acting uh, in a very atypical way, I would argue, in Washington. It's been relatively quiet and just doing its business. Um, I think the Republicans are very scared uh, by the effectiveness of this group and the fact that the Democrats, I mean, that we are, that this is a, a bipartisan commission. So it means that it's the government of the United States that's doing this. It's the Congress. It's not Democrats. And that's going to be really important. Um, you know, and uh, Liz Cheney has obviously been, you know, in many ways the face of this, which has been very smart. It is, look, I think that this commission is going to be one of Nancy Pelosi's um, most significant achievements as speaker. The way this was constructed, the the, the seriousness of purpose, the, uh, you know, they've gotten cooperation from virtually everybody, right? I mean, we, we you know, there are a few people who held out, but virtually everybody else has been cooperating. Um, and I think that, you know, this is going to go down in history as one of the most important things that Congress has ever done. And um, and and I'm just I'm pleased. I didn't know if it was going to work. I was I struggled with how we managed the two impeachments. And I felt that in some ways we weren't courageous enough. We didn't go wide enough. We were too narrow. It was sort of legalistic. Right. Uh, this is different. Right. They are. I think we learned from the impeachment process that this had to be more comprehensive. It had to be slower. Um, and they've taken their time. And I think we'll get a report 
uh, by the spring, an interim report by the spring. And I will say that I think that, you know, when I look at how the landscape in, in, the, electorate, in the election could change over the next few months, you look at Roe v. Wade, right? You look at Ukraine could really change things. You know, COVID receding could really change things. This commission could change things. I mean, it is going to be indisputable that if you vote for a Republican for the House, you're putting insurrectionists back in charge. Clear over and out, right? Like, it's easy to make that argument. It's going to be manifestly true, um, you know, or radicals, whatever the words are we're going to use. And so I, I do think that the impact of this of this process is going to dramatically impact the dialogue and discussion in the country, you know, when it when they start going public, and it will be much harder. And that's why I also think that the South, the House, and the Senate are going to be different, right? McConnell's throwing McCarthy under the bus. He he's he's creating distance from the House Republicans because he knows they're guilty, right? He knows they cooperated. He knows that this, you know, and so I do think that when I talk to reporters and say, "Well, Democrats can't win," I mean, everything else, I'm like, look, it is it is just going to be as like the sky is blue, that if you vote for a Republican for the House, you're putting crazy people back in charge of the government. And and I and I think that this commission is going to do is going to have a dramatic impact in helping people understand the threat that the Republicans really represent. I mean, maybe we should call them what Ted Cruz called them, terrorists. Yeah, I mean, all of that stuff is a sign of their worry, right? Newt Gingrich, they're worried, right? And and I think that, you know, if you have a combination of Trump getting indicted in Georgia or in New York, you know, gets going, you know, getting in. I mean, you could see a whole series of legal actions taken against Republicans in the next few months. And at that point, one of the things that's going to become very clear is that they are not, they are, they have not been, nor are they going to be a party that respects the rule of law, right? I mean, we're about to be reminded of that in a very dramatic fashion. The law applies to us, but not to them, right? And and I think that you know that piece of this is going to get, I think, a little bit scary, right? I, I think that their rejection and their and the and the part and the reaction to the normal wheels of justice turning is going to create radicalization on their side, and and we just can't be, we can't pretend that that's not going to happen. It doesn't mean we don't do it. We can't be intimidated by that, right? The wheels of justice have to turn. The commission's got to do its work. We've got to follow what Lene has recommended earlier. But we also have to recognize is that they're not going to go quietly into the good night here. Things are going to get, you know, they're going to get ugly uh, this summer and fall. And we just shouldn't be surprised, you know, by it when that happens. Yes. Totally agree with all of that. One of the most egregious parts of this for me, obviously, is that, you know, Gingrich is framing the prosecution of people who attempted to violently overthrow the government and stop Congress from certifying an election as being persecuted for political beliefs. Um, Susan, how do you expect that framing of the January 6th prosecutions as political persecution to actually play in public opinion. And don't you also want to see Democrats run an ad that says Ted Cruz was right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I never want to see that ad. Ted Cruz was right. Under any, were, like, under were, any circumstances. I, nope, nope. <laughs> I, I don't think I could actually get behind that. I'm sorry. Because he is wrong even if he yeah. Well, he's he's begging for mercy on Tucker Carlson's show now for saying that. But that's that's yeah, another so, pathetic story. But but I do think I I think, first of all, this is Gingrich looking for attention. He needs relevance. This is a very, you know, self-serving uh, 
thing he's done. It's it's meant to be disruptive and to be divisive. I do not think people, the public, will really buy into that. Um, honestly, those who would already are there. Like he he's not going to create this new group of people that are going to say, wow, they're persecuting, you know, people. And that's horrible. But what I do think is important is that the, the, the select committee start showing the lies that they probably have found. And, you know, they've released tweets and other documents. I think that we're going to see a lot of people testifying um, taking the fifth because they have no idea what the committee actually has in paper. And they've spoke, I've said this before, they've spoken to 400 people. They don't know what other people have said. And this administ- the, the Trump administration, it, it's kind to say they were incompetent and sloppy. I mean, that's the understatement. But they were completely reckless and had no problem telling people about it. So with those three things, I, I, I think there's going to be enough really good, solid information that comes out in paper form, like in their own words, that, um, that will kind of get above, you know, above the fold. Let's not forget, um, Newt Gingrich is also starting, you know, some edu- crazy education, C4, or whatever. He, um, he, he's just looking to, to be relevant again. And these words get him that. But I, I, I think the American people have really said enough with what we saw on January 6th. We cannot tolerate it. Whether or not you support it or not, we don't want to see it again. And we do have to find out how that doesn't happen again. And that's the job of the select committee. And we should always remember it. The select committee is not meant to indict Donald Trump. That's not their job. Their job is to find out what happened and make recommendations. Full stop. Any illegal activity, they defer, they refer to the DOJ. So I think they will actually present their, their findings quite well. And if you think about the political implications of this, you know, I think we all know that Joe Biden's approval rating has taken a hit, that um, first midterms for a party are historically difficult. Um, but if you know, if folks are just sitting around on election day saying, do I like the Democrats? Um, That's going to be bad for us. But if folks are sitting around saying, my choice is between the people that are currently governing and these crazy people who are siding with insurrectionists, that's a much better (laughs) question. So we absolutely have to pose the contrast and make it clear that they are not an acceptable alternative if we're going to avoid what we saw in, you know, Virginia and New Jersey carrying over to the midterms. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you're watching. Simon, what do you have for us under the radar? Under the radar. I, I The thing that I just have been spending a lot of time thinking about, writing about, talking to people about is how can it be that since 1989, 42 million jobs have been created in America and 40 million of those jobs have been created under Democratic presidents. And Joe Biden just oversaw one of the strongest American economies in the post-World War II era. And Republicans are trusted more on the economy by double digits. It's the great mystery of American politics. And I think that, you know, this is something that, you know, what I put out in a memo this week is that Democrats should, our highest political priority this year now, 
has to be to close that gap and to either get even or ahead of Republicans by July 4th on the economy and to make it and to take responsibility for making the case. I don't think we made the case. I mean, a week after Joe Biden passed the American Rescue Plan, he introduced a new bill, uh, BBB. And, and a lot of what we talked about with BBB over the last six months was a what we talked about was that the plan that we had just passed was actually insufficient. Um, we And we never did the victory lap on the original plan. And so people heard us. We told voters that what we had just done wasn't good enough. And it was a huge political error by our collective family, what just happened. We needed to do the victory lap, establish the, you know, make the connection between the recovery and the original bill. The good news is we have time and now to do this. And I think if we all commit together as Democrats to say that, you know, by July 4th, we're going to be even or ahead with Republicans in the economy. We're going to take, we're going to get credit for the good work that we've done in this administration and previous administrations. I think it will be, it is an urgent need, and it's the only way I think we really get back into the game in this election. I think it's something that's doable, but it's going to require a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of commitment. And it's going to also require us to be far more disciplined about what we talk about every day uh, than we've been over the last six months. I completely agree. And and also I've been following your 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 tweets on this particular untold story lately. And uh, and I, I think you're... You're you're totally right. This should be a major uh, uh, point in the messaging toolkit for Democrats, and uh, and I and I hope that it is. Listeners, you should follow Simon on Twitter <laughs> to 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 keep track of this. And I just want to say, Ron Klain actually tweeted out my tweet about this this morning. So it's it's good to know that the White House got open ears and is trying to figure out how to make sure. Look, they've done a remarkable job. They need to get credit for it, and that we need to help them do that. Totally. Susan, what are you watching? Um, I'm probably going to get a lot of blowback for this, but I think that um, in order for this administration to make a turn on COVID, they have to stop talking about beating COVID, change their messaging, say how we are going to, I don't want to say live with it, but how it will be part of our lives, how you're getting home tested, how we have drugs that are being developed, all of that good things. But in order to really make that turn from like we're coming under fire to we can manage this is going to require that Dr. Fauci stop being a public face on this issue and a spokesperson for the White House. He should continue. I mean, he's a value, a valuable resource for this country. And I hope he advises not just this president, but two more to come. I mean, he has so much to offer and his expertise should be listened to. But if the administration wants to make a change and make a turn on how it's handling COVID, Fauci has become too much of a political figure and especially on the right, there's some god-awful DeSantis commercial out there uh, just attacking Fauci on flip-flopping, and which is, uh, I mean, it's a lie. It's not true, but yeah, it's fodder out there. Yeah. It is, he, he, is, he is too political in an area that is supposed to be about following the science. And I think it's time for him to leave the public stage and continue his service directly to you know the president yeah we we talked about this last week it, by 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 no fault of his own right he has just become not the most effective uh messenger for the administration i think i agree uh Lene, what do you got 
Well, I was going to bring you something uh, about cryptocurrency because I know how much you love cryptocurrency, but I feel like I really have to lighten things up because it's just been okay. a heavy week, y'all. It's, it's been a heavy, heavy week. week. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give you something uh, that isn't about you know democracy in flames or um, row ending or any of those things. It's about dear Glenn Youngkin, dear Glenn Youngkin. Uh, current governor of Virginia, where I spend much of my time, um, did something this week that was really special. He instituted a tip line where parents can call in and tattle on their kids' teachers for talking about race. So what sounds like Texas <laughs> then, I mean, it's, it's similar because what happened, and this actually happened in the Texas case too, was that um, Democrats and progressives decided to uh, prank call the tip line all week long. They have flooded the tip line <laughs> with tips about teachers that are teaching, for example, Arabic numerals to their children. Um, John Legend tweeted it. John Legend tweeted it and like got a bunch of people to call in and prank Glenn Youngkin. And I'm just like, thank you. Thank you, TikTok. Thank you, John Legend. <laughs> this is the only right answer to this is pranking Glenn Youngkin. So that, if you haven't seen hmm. it, go read a story about it. It's light and it's what we need at the end of this heavy week. That's totally, totally doing that. Totally doing that. <laughs> I may prank him now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. We are about to go to the after party where we're going to talk about the the political consequences and implications of what is going on in Ukraine and Biden's response to Russia uh, from, from a domestic political perspective. But before we do that, uh, Susan, Lene, Simon, before we uh, hop over, where can everybody find you on the internet, Simon? Um, on Twitter, Simon WDC and NDN.org. Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter, and you can find our deck that we discussed earlier at thirdway.org. And we'll put a link in today's show notes. Susan? I'm on Twitter at Del Percio S. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>